doesn't sound terrible to say that I didn't bring my Bible. Is there a Bible here that I can use to uh, to read Nehemiah 1 to you? <laughs> I am so glad that everyone in seminary went, Bible? That's <laughs> 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 made me feel so much better. <laughs> Let's read Nehemiah. Let's read Nehemiah 1. Together. All right. That's hard to find. Pressure. I always put my bookmark before I go up. Here are the words of Nehemiah. Now, it happened in the twelfth month, the twelfth year, that I was in Susa, the capital, that Hannah, one of my, my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came and asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me that the, remem- the remnant there are, are in the province who, who survived captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. I said, Beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness of those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive, and your eyes now open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons and daughters of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons and daughters of Israel, which have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful... I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through those of you, those of you who have been scattered, even in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and the prayer of your servants, who delight to revere your name, and make your servants successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So a lot can be said about how our culture has shifted over the years. I know a number of you have just left ethics class and you have been talking about things that were unfathomable just a few years or decades ago and now are commonplace. Some changes have not been good. Other changes have absolutely been a positive and have been great for us. On a pop cultural sense, one of the things that I most love has been the rise of, of geek culture. I am on my third Spider-Man and loving it. I have been, I think, seven different movies with Iron Man in it. 
And these movies now have such cultural weight. My wife, who absolutely hates them, still feels that she has to watch them because so many other people do that she needs to engage in that conversation. It's not just a quirky thing that I like. It's a billion and billions and billions of dollar industry. It has enough cultural weight to it. I love superheroes. You know, I... I wasn't a straight shot into ministry. I, I thought about it for a while. I, I left... Uh, I tried university once, my undergrad, and I lasted long enough to write my midterms. Uh, and then I had a good sense of what those marks probably were going to be. So I withdrew before they told me. <laughs> because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I finally committed that I absolutely wanted to be in ministry, I, I was able to tear through school in a way I hadn't before. But it had always been in the back of my mind. And as I was driving to work every day, the, uh, a person who's become a good friend of mine, and the, uh, as part of the Catholic Church, Father James initiated a search for new priests. And they did it with a, with a billboard campaign all over the HRM. And it was, a, it was a simple image of the clerical collar on a, on a backdrop. And depending on where you were driving, they would have looked a little bit different. And they would have said different things. But the one that was between my house and my employer at the time said this. Yes, you get to fight evil. <laughs> no, you don't get to wear a cape. And every day I drove by that, being hammered with the fact that I want to fight evil. I mean, that's ultimately why I got into ministry. I had a sense of call, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to see these evil and dark spots in the world, and I wanted to make them go away, as it was best within my power and my ability. And we all know about the great saving grace that Christ can bring into our lives and the eternal ramifications that that have. But in a very nuts and bolts, very practical way, I hope you all know that shared faith is a great determinant for increased marital satisfaction. That it's a great determinant for increased mental health. That it helps, by and large, people live longer and better. It actually helps children become more successful in school. It helps some people, at least, exit cycles of abuse and poverty and addiction. I mean, we know that living out faith in Christ makes an enormous difference in our lives on this side of the daisies as much as it does eternally. And short of a radioactive spider bite. This is absolutely the best way that I know of where I can fight against very real evils in this world. I assume you got into ministry as well because you wanted to change the world. I want to talk about how. Nehemiah is a great point or a great spot for us to discuss this. When Nehemiah heard the news that Jerusalem was still in ruins, he wept. It broke his heart. He prayed and fasted and cried day and night 
for a long period of time. I mean, he heard this devastating news and allowed his heart to be impacted by it. And it's worth sitting on that for a moment. Because Nehemiah is fine. I mean, he is doing well in his career. As well as anyone can imagine. He is uh, in, a, in a seat of enormous influence and uh, an unstructured power. Or informal power. He's doing really well. And he probably has a lot of the finer things in life. And he is living fairly far away from Jerusalem. And he could hear this the same way that we hear about disasters around the world. And go, well, that's a shame. We'll pray for them. And then move on with life. But that's not what he did. It broke his heart. Desperately. And then it moved him into acts of compassion. He had a, a tender heart. Which is worth contrasting what comes up from time to time in the scripture. Contrasting it to a hardened heart. A callous heart. One that can't receive messages from God. And one that does not hear compassion or does not experience compassion for people around them. You know, back in 1973, there was a brilliant social experiment done in, uh, in Princeton. It's the Daily or Darley Batson experiment. If you've not heard about it, you really need to look it up, because I'm not going to give it full justice now. But they, they wanted to know how well people would take the teachings of Jesus, in particular the, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. So they did an experiment on seminary students. They had one on one. They had students on one end of the uh, campus. Some of them they told that they needed to go to the other side of the campus and give a sermon on the good uh, the good uh, Samaritan. The other group they said, "I need you to go to the other side of the campus and explain the the job prospects of a theological education." Those are their two groups. They varied one other factor. Either they were in a rush, they were told you only have a couple of minutes to get from here to there, there are people waiting for you. Or, it's not going to start for a while, you have lots of time, don't worry about it. Partway through this journey, they would encounter a man who absolutely looked to be in distress. He looked like he had been mugged or robbed or sick, and they had to pass this person to get to the building that they were going in. And they wanted and expected that most seminary students would stop. They expected every seminary student who had the parable of the Good Samaritan on their minds as they were rushing to discharge their duty would absolutely stop. And they were wrong. Very wrong. Only about 60% stopped, which is better than they, or, or which is less than what they had hoped. What they discovered, though, is if they felt like they were doing something important, giving a sermon on the Good Samaritan, and if they felt that they were, sorry, if they felt that they were, uh, if, let me try that again, it, it didn't matter to them if they thought that they were giving a parable on the Good Samaritan or talking about theological education. The factor that changed was, were they in a rush? If they had all the time in the world, they stopped. If they needed to be somewhere within a few minutes, they were too busy. And they weren't callous about that. They saw him, they got there, and they were upset. But they knew they couldn't stop. You are busy right now. And this will be the state of life for 
probably the rest of ministry. That you will be busy. And because conditions of busyness hamper our heart's ability to feel compassion, we need to really reflect on the things that are going on around us. I reflect every now and again about how much ability I really do have to shape my calendar on any given day. There are things that I have to accomplish and things that have to be done, but I have more control over my calendar than I imagined. But the pressure is always to do more and to be busier. But busyness is an enemy of compassion. That the busier you get, the more full your day timer is, the more likely you are to step over an injured person. And you will feel bad for it. And you may even whisper a prayer as you go. But busyness hampers compassion. Nehemiah was busy. He had an important role, but he took time in prayer and wept. Let's move on for a moment. The Lord of heaven, you are great and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. Do you ever feel like a, a good, depressing day, and who doesn't from time to time? Just try sitting down and, and Googling, what is wrong with the church today? I mean, you've seen these articles as much as I have. Ten reasons why this church is failing. This is why we have to modernize or blah. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. And there is a myriad of these things produced every single day. It's depressing. And some of the articles I have read, as I suspect some that you have read, have been helpful critiques. They have given you an idea of what you can reflect on. Others are not helpful at all. That they're filled with, with rage or with or with hurt. They can they can they can pour tears out, but, but don't really have, have a lot to offer. But one of the things that I have found about so many of these articles is that they tend to have a, a very elongated finger pointing at you. That while they may list 10 or, or 6 or 20 or, or 100 things that the church is doing wrong, what they really are saying is this generation or the generation before us or the generation before them did it wrong and it was their fault. There's a deep blame that we see. Nehemiah here is praying for the sins of his ancestors, the sins of his father's house, and his sins. He is not part of the community that needed to have Jerusalem be destroyed. I mean, he is living away from that. He is not directly responsible for the exile. It wasn't his sins. And it would have been easy for him to point to the, to the generation that came before him and had said, if only people like me were there, this would have gone better. I mean, that's what we bump into in the New Testament with the Pharisees. We would have done better than they would have done. But instead of that, instead of blame, Nehemiah lodges himself directly within his community. And he confesses the sins of people that came well before him. Things that he took responsibility for were not really his responsibility. You are absolutely going to inherit problems that are not of your own making. There is no two ways about it. 
You are going to step into churches or into ministries, and there will be a whole history of things that you had no control over and no influence on. And if you think you can sidestep that by starting anew, planting fresh, you are still stepping into a culture that has an intense history with the church. And while I absolutely have met a handful of people that have had no connection whatsoever to any church at any point ever, that is a rarity. That most people I meet know someone of religious background, have stepped into a church at some point or another, and have had difficulties with it. Our default impulse is to act like we are the new sheriff in town. And all that was wrong will now be righted. And all that is, is inefficient will now be cast aside. That we are the new sheriff in town. I've been challenged by people who, though I am a Baptist minister, have pointed out a very direct question at me about the Catholic priest scandal. And it would be easy for me to say, well, that's, that's not who I am. And that's not the denomination that I represent. That's, that's not really part of the community that I'm part of. But we have to recognize that, that for people who are outside of faith, that we are all on one team. And that we all represent each other. And that we have to then for act like me and accept the sins of people that we didn't know and can't control as part of our community. Own it. Confess it. And then pledge to move beyond it and forward into something better. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. I was really interested. I, I, four years ago or so, I, I took a journey of, of, of having better physical health. That I was feeling tired and, and, and overweight and I was tired of being overweight and I, and I wanted to get healthier. And it's hard to stay that way but I, but I work at it because, because I want to. I was, I was interested that there was a study done in the U.S. and, and it comes up from time to time that when, when men in particular are, are told that your, your health is at such a point where you are at dire risk for heart problems, cardiac arrest and beyond. That, 20, that they are given exactly the advice you'd expect. Change your diet, exercise more, and if it applies, quit smoking. There is no magic bullet. Change your diet, exercise more, if it applies, quit smoking. Those will be good decisions you can make for your heart. 26% did none of those things. That they would hear the information, they would see the solution, they would be told what would happen if they made no change, and 26% that I'd rather go to the grave as I am than alter and continue on with, with health. After deep weeping, and after fasting, and after owning the community that he was part of, Nehemiah took a responsibility that he didn't have to take. Again, he, he was comfortable in the situation that he was in, 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 the, in the role that he had. And the rest of Nehemiah, he presents his case to the king, heads to Jerusalem, and begins to do something about it. See, often our pattern is we, we see the problem, and then we pray about the problem, and then we see the problem again, and then we pray about the problem again. 
And then we see the problem again. And we pray about the problem again. And I am not telling you that prayer is unimportant. I am telling you that eventually, and chances are, you know the thing you have to do, is then we have to do it. James reminds us from, from time to time that when we see people in need and fail to act, even if we dress it up with, with faithful language, what we really have done is nothing. And it may make us feel better, but we have ultimately done is, is nothing. Now, Nehemiah had so much that was outside of his control. He didn't know what would happen when he presented his case to the king. He, he could have received a, a favorable reply, which he did. Or he could have found himself out of the job. Or out of this world altogether. It, and he just he didn't know. But he knew he needed to do something. And that is going to be the condition that we continually find ourselves in as well. We know what we have to do. We just don't know what's going to happen next. And it would be so much easier for us if God would just tell us that I know you're asking me to do this action, but what I really also need you to do is tell me what the results will be. And that's not often the case. Pray. And then act. You are absolutely called to change the world. You are absolutely called to defeat evil. Nehemiah gives a great example to follow. Allow your heart to be broken. Allow it to be compassion-filled. Allow those feelings to drive you into deep prayer. And then when God speaks, take those hard actions that only you can take. Work on the things that you have control over. See the influence that you have. My, my, uh, my six-year-old uh, daughter is, uh, is sometimes better at explaining what I do than I am. That, that when I allow my head to be filled with concepts of changing the world, I can let myself feel frustrated and depressed when the world kind of ticks along as if it wasn't recognizing all that I was trying to do for it. <laughs> but I heard her explain to some of her classmates what, what I do, and, and she said, instead of, instead of grand terms that I, I, I think they'll rarely speak, she explained to her friends, well, my daddy is a pastor. So he helps people. And I like that. And I like to think about that more now. I, I perhaps got into this to change the world. But perhaps, perhaps instead I can settle into the calling as my daughter understands it. And I can help people. I want to pray for you. And then I'll pray about Gracious God, Lord, we just thank you so much for today. I thank you for everybody here in this room. For everybody part of this college uh, now and in the past and, and those that you will be calling into the future. Thank you that I'm surrounded by people who are attempting to change the world in grand ways and in small ways. Help us to help people that your name would be again made great. You are faithful to generations beyond counting. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.